question, and that question is this. Have you ever dealt with the problem of stagnancy? And it can be in a lot of different areas of your life. Maybe you've been involved in a new business, and at first the business started really well. Things were growing. You were making money. It looked like the future was looking really, really good. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the business kind of went downhill. The growth stopped happening. The money stopped coming in. And you had no idea what you needed to do to kind of re-harness some of that initial growth that you had seen. Maybe you've hit a period of stagnancy when it comes to your health. You've been trying to get a little bit healthier, trying to take better care of yourself, maybe in terms of fitness, maybe in terms of hygiene, whatever you want to whatever you want to name it. And you've been trying so hard, eating better, exercising, paying better attention, trying to lose fat, trying to gain muscle, trying to lose weight, whatever it is that your goals are. And for a while, you see some results. But then all of a sudden, a month into it, Or two months into it, or six months into it, you feel like you've hit a period of stagnancy. No matter how well you eat, no matter how much you exercise, you don't look any different, you don't feel any different, and you wonder what in the world comes next. Or maybe you've hit a period of stagnancy with your finances. You're working really, really hard to pay down debt. You're trying so hard. You're working an extra job. You're doing really, really well. But then life happens. Things creep up. Things that are out of your control. And all of a sudden, no matter how hard you work, no matter how much you pay, it seems like that number is never going down. The definition of stagnancy is not flowing in a current or stream. That's referring to a body of water. Imagine a standing body of water. You have a puddle sitting out in the woods and it's not moving. There's no progression. There's no current. What happens? The water becomes dirty and unusable and smelly. And mosquitoes start to swarm to this water because it's stagnant. If we look at it, not just with water, but stagnant can be defined as not active, changing or progressing. We all probably know what stagnancy is, and there are probably different areas in our life where we've wrestled with it before or where we're wrestling with it right now. For me, my example, you've probably heard me talk about this before, but my yard is stagnant. The reason I mentioned my yard is because I want to have a nice yard. I've mentioned it before. I will mention it again because that's how frustrating it is. When I inherited the yard that we have, when we moved into our house, the yard was not in great shape. The person who lived there before kind of did the bare minimum to take care of our yard. And so when we moved in, I decided that I wanted the yard to look better. I grew up in a home where my dad took it very, very seriously to have a nice yard, have a well-manicured yard. He took pride in it. He didn't want the yard to be a nuisance to the neighbors. And so I wanted to do the same thing. I wanted to make my yard look better. And so... I cut it high, I cut it low, I cut weeds or pulled weeds with my bare hands, I sprayed weeds with chemicals, I spread fertilizer, I spread seed in the spots that were dead. I did everything that I really knew how to do, everything that I could within my ability and my resources, and yet to this very day, it doesn't really seem like my yard is any different than it was when we first moved in. My yard is stagnant. It's not growing. It's not progressing. Change isn't happening. And while all of these times of stagnancy can be very, very frustrating, they can be very, very angering, what maybe is more dangerous than 
stagnancy of a business or stagnancy of physical health or stagnancy of finances or stagnancy of my yard. Maybe what's more dangerous and what's more concerning is when we have those times of spiritual stagnancy, those times of a lack of growth spiritually, those times where our spiritual lives just don't seem to be active. There's nothing happening. It seems like we've flatlined spiritually, at least for a time. So what does a follower of Jesus do when these times of spiritual stagnancy come? Because inevitably they will. And what do we do to avoid them as much as possible? And what gives us hope in the midst of them? Maybe you're dealing with spiritual stagnancy at this very moment. And you are frustrated by the fact that you're not growing, or at least it doesn't feel like you're growing. You feel like you're spinning your wheels. You feel like you're not getting anywhere. And it leaves you frustrated. It leaves you feeling guilty. And it leaves you feeling like somehow you are letting God down. And if you don't get it together really quickly and start growing faster, then God's going to disown you. What do you do in those times? How do we, as God's people, those who are expected to be growing and changing and developing and progressing, what do we do in those times? How do we find hope in the midst of those times? And how do we try to avoid those times as best as we can? Well, with that, look at Titus chapter 2, verse 11. That's where we're going to be this morning. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. We're finishing up our Trustworthy Saying series. This is the fifth and final week of this series. We've been looking at 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and now today, Titus, seeing these five different things that Paul tells these two young church leaders. So Titus chapter 2, verse 11. If you're using one of our chair Bibles, that's on page 857. If you don't own a Bible, grab one from the welcome desk and take that home with you before you leave today. But before we get into the background, before we get into the text, let's pray together and then we'll get started. Father, we are grateful that you grow us, that you change us, that you progress us. But God, I also know that so many of us, it seems like all the time we're wrestling or coming out of or just entering or right in the middle of a time of spiritual stagnancy where the growth just doesn't seem to be happening. It just doesn't seem like there's any life there. And God, I know there are people in this room that are in all types of of phases of spiritual stagnancy. And God, we are grateful that even in the midst of our spiritual stagnancy, even in the ruts that we find ourselves in, we're grateful that you're thankful, that you're, that you're able to save us. We're grateful that you're sufficient in those times of spiritual stagnancy. And God, I pray that as we talk about that this morning, I pray that we'll leave with hope. That we'll understand that we don't have to take it all upon ourselves to get ourselves out of these times, to get ourselves out of these ruts. But God, you can do that for us and you invite us to participate in it. So God, thank you again for your faithfulness, even when we fall short. We love you. We praise you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
All right, well, before we get into Titus 2, verse 11, let's get some background. We've talked about 1 Timothy. We've talked about 2 Timothy. Those were two letters that were written near the end of Paul's life. 2 Timothy was the last letter that Paul wrote that we know of. Those were the last words that he wrote. He talked about how I'm being poured out like a drink offering, how I know my time has come. He knew his death was coming any day as he wrote 2 Timothy. And this letter, too, it's near the end of Paul's life, but this letter is written in between 1st and 2nd Timothy. At this time, Paul's probably traveling near a place called Nicopolis, and he's writing this letter to Titus, another church leader, very similar to Timothy, a young guy who's facing some challenges. He's been appointed by Paul in Crete, this area of Crete, to appoint elders. We read that in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. He's there to appoint elders, and he's there to set what remains into order. Now, Paul gives these commandments to Titus for a couple different reasons. Number one, Titus is dealing with the very similar false teaching problem that Timothy was dealing with in Ephesus. He's having to be on his guard to make sure he's dedicated to good teaching, to sound doctrine. And so Paul tells Titus, Titus, I'm going to give you the same advice that I gave Timothy. If you want to guard against false doctrine, appoint elders, appoint good, godly men who understand sound doctrine and let them lead in the churches. They can help you get away from this bad teaching. So Titus, appoint elders and then put what remains into order. What do you think is meant by that? Well, it seems that the churches in Crete may not have really had it all together. They may have been going through some problems. They were having some real, real issues that they were having to face. And it wasn't just the problem of false teaching. Crete was a rough neck of the woods. Crete was known historically as a hub or a center of piracy. So if you've ever seen Pirates of the Caribbean, picture Tortuga. That's what Crete is. It is a place of immorality. It is a place of all kinds of licentiousness. It is a place of chaos and violence. It's just not really going to win any awards for best family-friendly neighborhood. Crete is a rough neck of the woods. In Titus chapter 1, verse 12, we hear Paul say to Titus, or Paul writes... One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Paul doesn't have great things to say about the Cretans. And Paul essentially says, now, I'm not going to say they're evil and lazy and liars, but uh, somebody else did. And they're right. These people are evil. These people are lazy. These people are liars. And these are the people that Titus is attempting to do ministry to. These are the people that are making up Titus's churches. And so Titus needs all the help he can get. He needs to appoint elders. He needs to avoid bad doctrine as much as possible. But then we're also going to see that Titus needs to make sure that those disciples who are in the churches... Those people who have placed their faith and their trust in Christ. Those people who aren't evil and lazy and liars anymore. At least they're not supposed to be. It's very important that these people avoid times of spiritual stagnancy. To avoid that stagnancy that so often creeps into our lives as followers of Jesus. So let's look at Titus chapter 2 
verse 11, starting our passage. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. I want you to remember that first phrase, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So that phrase, the grace of God has appeared. We're going to come back to really what that means when the rubber hits the road, what it means for the grace of God to have appeared and how that helps us avoid those times of spiritual stagnancy and how it grows us even in the midst of those times. But Paul gives three quick hits of what this means. What's so important about the grace of God appearing? Well, the first thing is that God's grace brings salvation. He says that in verse 11. God's grace brings salvation. And what he means is simply the bare bones gospel. The fact that God sent his son in the flesh, his perfect son in the flesh, fully God and fully man, lived a sinless life, died a sacrificial death on the cross, a Life and a death that Jesus encountered, not because he was some victim of circumstance, not because he was a great prophet cut down in his youth, but because Jesus voluntarily gave himself up to this death. He voluntarily gave himself up to the cross. So he died on the cross. He took the punishment on himself that you and I deserve, the debt that we could never pay on our own. He pays it for us with his blood, with his death. And all of this is seen in no better place than his resurrection. Jesus himself defeats not just physical death, but Jesus defeats spiritual death so that people like you and me. People who really, if we're honest with ourselves, we aren't that much better than the Cretans. Evil and lazy and liars, people like us and people like the Cretans can be reconciled to God. Because Jesus died and Jesus is risen and Jesus is coming again. That's the gospel. God's grace has appeared and this brings salvation. And Titus, don't ever forget that. Now, the second thing that God's grace does now that it has appeared is that God's grace trains his people. Paul says that it's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. In other words, God's grace doesn't just stop at saving us. There's more to it than that. God's grace has a bigger role than just bringing salvation. God's grace trains his people. It trains his people to live the types of lives that Paul is talking about here. And imagine living in Crete. Imagine living in this place where there is so much immorality. There is so much crime. There is so much violence. There are so many things that you would find yourself tempted to turn your eyes away from God. And yet Paul says, Titus, even in a place like Crete, you can live the kinds of lives I'm talking about. The people in your churches, they can live these types of lives. 
They can be upright. They can be self-controlled. They can shun worldly passions, but it is because God's grace has appeared. Now, the third thing that God's grace does is God's grace empowers his people to wait. Paul says that one day Jesus is going to return. And until then, we wait for our blessed hope. We heard about how Jesus died on the cross. He rose from the grave. He ascended to be with God. But that's not the end of the story. One day he will return and God's kingdom will be seen in creation the way that we have never seen it before. We often look around in the world around us and we say, you know what? I hear that God is ruling and that God is reigning and that Jesus is ruling from the right hand of God. But it sure doesn't look like it because there are some serious issues and there is some serious, horrifying stuff happening in the world around me. You mean to tell me that Jesus is really reigning, that Jesus is really ruling? And the answer is yes, he really, really is. But we also wait for the day when he will return and we'll see that kingdom for what it truly is. We'll see it in the world around us. And God's grace empowers us to wait. Now, that's all great. God's grace brings salvation. God's grace trains his people. God's grace helps us to wait for when Jesus will return. But back to that problem of spiritual stagnancy. What does it have to do with it? What does this have to do with those times where we're lacking growth, where we don't seem to be progressing in our maturity in Christ? Well, I think part of the problem is that often when Christians talk about God's grace and what God's grace does and what God's grace accomplishes is we stop at number one. We say, all right, God's grace brings salvation. I am saved by grace. I am justified by grace. And that's all well and good. We are saved by grace and by grace alone. We are not saved by our own attempts at good works or our own attempts at righteousness. But the problem is that grace doesn't stop there. The same grace that saves us is the same grace That grows us. People are saved by God's grace and people are grown by God's grace. What's the opposite of stagnancy? Growth, movement, progression, activity. What's the answer to the problem of spiritual stagnancy? Well, the answer to the problem of spiritual stagnancy is the same answer to the problem of sin. And the problem of death and the problem of separation from God. And the answer to those problems is that word, grace. God's grace has appeared. God's grace has saved you. God's grace is growing you. And God's grace helps you to wait. God's grace does all of these things. It doesn't just stop at number one. Let's look at Titus chapter 3, verse 1, picking back up in our passage. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy. Hated by others and hating one another. 
So Paul reminds Titus, he says, Titus, God's grace has appeared. God's grace has saved you and these people in Crete. God's grace is training you and these people in Crete. So remind them of that. Remind them that this grace is here, that these people who were once rebellious and angry and zealous for sin and enslaved by sin, that's not who they are anymore. Not through their works, but through God's grace. The things that they used to once love doing, the things that make pirates pirates, quarreling and fighting and not being gentle and hating each other, that's not who they are anymore. Because God's grace has saved them and because God's grace is changing them. So who are they now? Now that this grace is here, they're people who are zealous for good works, is the phrase that Paul uses. To be ready for every good work. Who are looking to be obedient. Who are looking to submit to authorities, not just because they're authorities, but because they believe it brings honor to God. They're looking for opportunities to be kind, looking for opportunities to be peaceful. And the thing that deserves the credit for the change in these Cretans' lives, the thing that deserves the credit for the changes that happen in my life and the changes that happen in your life as we follow Jesus, the credit goes to God's grace. And when we believe that God's grace just saves us, and that's the end of it, then we end up completely falling short of what God's grace really is. And if we find ourselves trusting in anything other than God's grace, we're going to encounter those times of spiritual stagnancy. We absolutely must understand, and Paul stresses, that grace is what grows us, that grace is what trains us, that grace continues working well after that first initial decision to follow Jesus. And if we miss out on that, if we sell grace short and what grace really does, we're missing the beauty of it. And we're robbing God of the glory that he deserves because of the grace that has appeared. Let's look at Titus chapter 3, verse 4, moving through our passage. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, there you see a similar phrase, grace appeared, goodness and kindness of our loving God and Savior, that appeared. There's a theme happening here. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So grace, we hear that word. I'm up here saying it over and over again. We say that if it's like an ocean, we're sinking in it. We read it in books over and over and over. But what does that word really mean? How does that word really work? When the rubber hits the road, how does the grace of God take someone like you or take someone like me or take an evil and lazy and lying Cretan? How does God's grace take people like us and change them? How does it really happen? How are people like us transformed? How are we completely changed? 
Well, we see a few things that Paul stresses again. They weren't saved by anything they had done. It wasn't by their own righteous works. They were saved by God's mercy. Okay, okay, we kind of get that. We're getting the gist of that so far. But then we see the third thing, and this is the thing that maybe sticks out. God's grace works because the Holy Spirit does his job. Because the Holy Spirit is active. Because the Holy Spirit plays a role in this transformation and this change that occurs in my heart and in your heart and these horrible Cretans' hearts. And we see two words that Paul specifically mentions. The first word is that word, regeneration. Now, what does that word really mean? Well, it simply means to be given a brand new heart. Look at it this way. If our hearts are so tainted and darkened and hardened by sin, and if we ever hope to be reconciled to a holy and just and perfect and blameless God, we can't take the hearts that we have and just refurbish them. We need new hearts. We need to become something completely and utterly, entirely different. And we can't become that new creation on our own. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. You may have this verse on a coffee cup at your house. We read there, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He is a new creation. This is a one-time thing. Your heart is not the same as it was before. You've been given a new heart by God's grace. You're not just a improved creation. You're not just a cleaned up creation. You are a new creation. And God's grace is what has allowed that transformation to happen. You have been given a new heart. You have been regenerated. That's how God's grace transforms you. The second word we see is that word renewal. If regeneration is a one-time thing that happens by God's grace when we make that initial decision to follow Jesus, renewal is exactly how it sounds. It's a continuous, ongoing, progressive thing. We're given these new hearts, but the job's not done. We're given hearts that can obey, hearts that can live the lives that Paul's talking about, hearts that can result in people who are upright and self-controlled and renouncing ungodliness. But it doesn't stop there. We're also being continually chiseled day in and day out, little by little. You're being grown. Watchman Nee writes that regeneration is just preparing the groundwork for what happens later. That regeneration happens and our hearts are changed. We're given new hearts. But then there's renewal that comes as well. There's renewal that is happening day in and day out, even in the moments of spiritual stagnancy. And part of the beauty of this renewal that occurs, part of the beauty beauty of this preparing the groundwork is that people like you and me, we get to participate in it. And I say that for one reason. We hear these words like regeneration. We hear these words like renewal, that God gives us a new heart, that the Holy Spirit is working and chiseling on our hearts day in and day out. And we hear that and we might be tempted to say, well, I guess there's nothing for me to do. I just sit back and I just wait for transformation to happen. I just kick my feet up, grab a cold beverage and slowly but surely I'm going to become more upright and I'm going to become a person who's more obedient and I'm going to become a person who's more kind. I'll just sit back and passively 
let it happen. Well, that's not how it works. If that's how God wanted it to work, he could have made it work that way. And yet, he didn't. He gives us the privilege. He gives us the honor of participating in it. Of having a role to play in this growth. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. We read there, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more so in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You get that? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So it almost seems as though Paul is saying, Hey, your growth is dependent upon you. Work out your own salvation. If you want to grow, you're going to have to do it. But then, one verse later, he says, it's God who works in you. How does that happen? Which one is it? Do we work really, really hard to grow? Do we develop discipline and develop good habits and then we grow as a result? Or do we just sit back and let God do it? Which one is it? Make a decision, Paul. But here's the thing. It's both and. God and his grace is growing you. And God and his grace is allowing you to participate. Wayne Grudem writes this. It is important that we continue to grow both in our passive trust in God to sanctify us. Sanctify us is a fancy word for grow us. And in our active striving for holiness and greater obedience in our lives. If we neglect active striving to obey God, we become passive, lazy Christians If we neglect the passive role of trusting God and yielding to him, we become proud and overly confident in ourselves. In either case, our growth will be greatly deficient. In other words, what Grudem is saying is that if you want to grow as a follower of Jesus, trust in God's grace and look for opportunities to obey. If we somehow tell ourselves that we don't have to do anything in growth, that we just passively sit back and don't participate, then Grudem says we will become lazy Christians who really aren't growing at all. But at the same time, if we tell ourselves that it's completely on us, that it's completely up to my hard work and my will and my discipline to grow as a follower of Jesus, to avoid those times of spiritual stagnancy, then you will become proud. And you will become arrogant and you will become self-righteous and you will be in a constant state of spiritual stagnancy, even if you don't realize it because you think you're growing. You're forcing yourself to grow, but your growth is lacking because you're taking it all upon your shoulders instead of trusting in the grace of God. Instead of trusting that God is renewing your heart day in and day out. Now, I know these are a bunch of theological terms. I've probably bored you up to this point with all these words like regeneration and sanctify and renew and all this stuff. But let me bring it back down to earth a little bit. Back to my yard. My yard does not need renewal. My yard needs regeneration. I've tried to renew my yard. But I am convinced, and Mark Kinsey may disagree with me, but I am convinced that my yard is unsalvageable. The only way it will really become a good and fruitful and growing yard is if everything that is there right now is ripped up and a new yard is put in. 
That is the only way that growth is going to happen. That's the only way that my yard is going to look the way I want it to look. And the same can be said of us. Our hearts, because of the effects of sin, they leave us beyond just the need for renewal. They leave us in need of regeneration. And only when that initial heart transplant has occurred can renewal begin. Our hearts can only reflect God when God rips out the sinful heart and puts in the clean heart that only he can provide. And the only way that my yard is going to bear fruit and look the way I want it to look is if I rip it out and put in a brand new yard. That's the only way that growth will happen. But God in his grace... He's ripped out the yard. He's ripped out the old heart that you and I once had, that the Cretans once had, and he's put in something new. Now, if you're sitting here this morning and you are bothered by spiritual stagnancy in your life, you need renewal. Many of us might be sitting here and saying, you know what? I haven't grown the way I want to grow. I haven't progressed the way I feel I should be progressing. And that bothers me. That really, really gets under my skin because I want to be growing. I want to look more and more like Jesus. I want to have this new heart. I want this new heart to be seen in the way that I deal with people and in the way that I live my life. I want my faith to be contagious. I want to be growing. If you're bothered by that, you need renewal. If you're sitting here this morning and you've been calling yourself a follower of Christ and you aren't bothered by the spiritual stagnancy that's happening in your life, if you admit that, yeah, you know what, I haven't grown. Yeah, I'm the same as I was five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and I really don't care if I grow because all I want to do is make sure that I'm on the right standing with God and not in his doghouse. That way, when I die, then I can go to heaven, but then I can just keep on living the life that I want to live right now. If you're not bothered, by the stagnancy. If you're not bothered by the lack of growth, you don't need renewal. You need regeneration. You might need to rethink whether or not you've truly believed the gospel in the first place. Maybe you became a follower of Jesus just because that's what your family did. And so you kind of assume that it went on down the line. And because I grew up Christian, I guess I'm kind of an assumed Christian as well. Maybe you married somebody who was a Christian and you thought, well, you know what, I better get my act together a little bit and start acting like a Christian if I want this person to marry me and if I want our marriage to work. Maybe you became a Christian just because you liked the good morals. You liked the good teachings. Or maybe you became a Christian because you truly believed the gospel. Because you were truly confronted with the sin in your heart. And you realized your need for nothing else but God's grace. That you realized your need for a new heart. I'm not saying this to people to scare you. I'm not trying to scare people who are in a spiritual stagnancy right now, who are in a spiritual rut. I'm not trying to make you think, oh my gosh, what if I'm not even saved? What if I don't really know Christ at all? Did I really believe the gospel in the first place? A lot of preachers do that, and you end up getting people who rededicate to their faith five or ten or fifteen or twenty times, feeling guilty every single summer at Bible camp, not really realizing that they really were saved the whole time. They were just in a rut. I'm not trying to scare you into that. 
I'm not trying to make you one of those people who's just guilty of a spiritual rut that you're in and feeling like you constantly need to rededicate your life to Christ. That's not what I'm trying to do. But if you're dealing with stagnancy and you don't want to be, you need renewal. And I would encourage you to lean into God's grace because the same grace that saved you is the same grace that grows you. I would encourage you to trust that the Holy Spirit is renewing your heart, even in those moments where it might not really feel like it. I would challenge you to be actively participating in your growth. Maybe you have been a little bit passive. God's asking you to participate. He's giving you the privilege of participating in this growth. So do it. Don't just sit back and wait for it to happen automatically if you're bothered by spiritual stagnancy. And if you're not bothered by the spiritual stagnancy in your life, I would implore you to consider whether or not you believe the gospel. Whether or not you really placed your trust in the grace of God. Whether or not you've actually trusted in Jesus as Savior and Lord. If stagnancy doesn't bother you, then that's a problem. Because God's grace has created you to grow. God's grace has created you to progress. You are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And day in and day out, the new is continuing to come through the renewal of your heart. Let's look at Titus chapter 3, verse 8, closing out the passage. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Go down to verse 14. We read there and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Same phrase. So as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. I pray that growth is happening in your life. I pray that God's grace has appeared and that you have seen it for yourself and that that grace has left you with a desire to grow, with a desire to be constantly yielding to God, constantly submitting to God's work of renewal in your life and constantly looking for opportunities to obey. I pray that every single one of us is avoiding those times of spiritual stagnancy as much as possible. But I also pray that if you're in the midst of it at this very moment, that you would find hope in the grace of God. That you wouldn't keep telling yourself that it's all on you to grow. That it's all on you to change. That you just have to work really hard to look more and more like Jesus. I pray that you'll find hope for that. And again, if you aren't bothered by spiritual stagnancy, I pray that you'll really consider have I believed the gospel? Has grace really appeared to me? Or have I maybe been going through the motions for some period of time just because I thought I knew Christ? I would encourage you to consider that. And I pray that every single one of us, those who have been regenerated, those who have been renewed by the grace of God, I pray that we are devoting ourselves to good works. I pray that we are growing. I pray that we're doing this for the good of others, for the glory of God, and so that the grace that has appeared to us can be undeniable as people look at our lives. Let's pray. 
Father, we're grateful for the fact that our salvation is not up to us. It's not based on how good we are. It's not based on how moral we are. It's not based on how charitable we are. But salvation is based on your grace. And God, I'm also grateful that our growth isn't based on how good we are or how moral we are or how charitable we are. But that, too, is based on your grace. And God, I pray that your grace would be moving in this church, that your Holy Spirit would be moving in our hearts day in and day out. That we won't buy into the lie that all your grace does is save us and that's the end of it and the rest is up to us because that is a lie. The same grace that saves us is the grace that grows us. And I pray that we'll be confident of that. And God, like I said, all of us are probably dealing with times of spiritual stagnancy for different reasons at different levels. Some of us are going into it and some of us are coming out of it and some of us are right in the middle of it. God, I pray that those times of stagnancy would cease. But I also pray that even in the midst of them, that we can find hope in you. That your grace gives us hope. To know that even when it doesn't feel like it, you are growing us. And you might even be using those spiritual ruts to do it. And God, I pray that those people here who maybe would admit that, you know what, yeah, I haven't grown at all. I'm the same creation that I was before I professed faith in Christ. I pray that those people would consider where they stand with you. I pray that you'd be moving in their hearts, working in their hearts. That you would be making new creations all around us every single day. And that you would be renewing us day in and day out. We love you. We praise you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Maybe you're in that period of spiritual stagnancy and you are frustrated and concerned. You don't know what to do. Talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room. They can pray with you. They they can encourage you. They can maybe even recommend resources that have helped them in their times of spiritual stagnancy and the ruts that they've encountered. Or if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you admit that, yeah, you know what? I'm not in a period of spiritual stagnancy. I'm still in spiritual death. I pray that you would talk to them. I pray that you would place your faith in Christ this morning. They'd be happy to pray with you, happy to answer any questions that you have, happy to be there for you in whatever way that you need them. They'll be standing at the sides of the room. Talk to those guys.